nursing industry is one of the fastest growing career forces in the world today. There are so many issues in the healthcare field these days relating to nurses that simply are not discussed in the media. Welcome to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with Leanne Meyer. Our program will help you with the most relevant information if you're in the nursing field or are planning to enter the industry. Now, here is your host, Leanne Meyer. Thank you very much for joining us this morning on Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing. And um, just a few days ago, I thought I would be interviewing Beth Bataglino about nurses doing self-care during COVID crisis. Then Monday night, our country exploded as one thoughtless and possibly cruel police officer in Minnesota took the life of George Floyd in front of other police officers, witnesses, and cameras callously refusing to assist this man clearly in great distress. George died, and the grief and rage of the country was lit simultaneously. Instead, today, I'm talking with Dr. Dania Dunkley about racism and health. Um, I would like to start the program with a clip of Kim Fox, who is running for Attorney General, uh, excuse me, um, uh, she's running for County Attorney, Uh, in uh, Cook County in Chicago. She spoke very eloquently yesterday, and I'd like to run this clip to start us off. Good afternoon. It is a rather somber day for me in that it is the first time that I've been in the city since March 18th. As someone who was born and raised in this city, born in one of the toughest neighborhoods in this city, a community that was fair to say, had been on the margins, who had seen all of the inequities uh, that we are talking about this week. Driving into the city with a piece of hope in my heart when I saw the skyline and my heart broke, when I saw the boards on our windows, this is a tough day. I start first as Kim Fox, child of Chicago, that when we talk about the week that we have had in the city from a law enforcement standpoint, what we saw last night and the night before, not just here, but across the country, was angering. But I want to back us up to what precipitated this. You've heard the mayor and the governor who have been doing yeoman's work dealing with COVID-19 and now this, talk about the horrific death of George Floyd. And I want to not have us limit ourselves to what this week has been about and what it has felt like, not just for those who took to the streets last night, but to those who occupy offices that you work in, your students, your friends, me. When I looked at that video and I made the mistake of looking at the whole thing, And I watched that man with his knee in that man's neck, hand in pocket, and the casual disregard for his life in broad daylight while being filmed without a concern in the world as to what would happen to him. That we would be inclined to think that it's just the murder of George Floyd that has our streets filled. What I remember feeling in that moment was the casualness of all of the things that we have experienced in this country that we were dealing with with COVID-19. The casual acceptance of racial disparities in healthcare. That when we looked at the work that is being done in the last few months to deal with this pandemic and the news came out that African-Americans were disproportionately dying and Latinos, the casual acceptance that that's part of what happens with underlying health conditions because the casual acceptance that we have people living in communities that don't have access to health care and we just accept it. The casual acceptance that those who were losing their jobs 
In the midst of this pandemic, our frontline workers, our essential workers were black and Latino and going into grocery stores and being clerks and being the least paid. We casually accept that. We casually accept with a hand in our pocket that the last time there were major riots in the city of Chicago in the 60s on the west side where we have seen burnt out buildings that remain and economic disinvestment continue, that those folks we know had been the victims of historic discrimination and redlining that brought Martin Luther King to our neighborhoods in the 60s before I was born and we still see the same levels of discrimination today with a hand in our pocket looking into the camera as though nothing's gonna change. I say that because I was not okay this week when I saw George Floyd on that ground because it wasn't just about the names that were enumerated earlier today that when we talk about Rakia Boyd or Laquan McDonald or those names here in the city, it is bigger than that. And it requires me to say that even in the response of what we've seen in the last couple of days for context, for those who don't understand what's happening, it is bigger than that to watch a man casually take the life of another under the color of law as a law enforcement professional and as a black woman and a child of Cabrini, my heart broke. What we have seen in this country are broken hearts and anger at the continual cycle that we have seen of the casual acceptance of systemic racism in this country. People are angry. I am angry. What is not acceptable is what I saw last night. That there will be those who will try to exploit the anger and the mourning, and as the mayor has said, the righteous indignation of what has been happening in this country, exploited for their own good. Whether it is those that have come here to sow discontent, who would have the audacity to write Black Lives Matter on buildings when they don't at all feel that, who would use this as an opportunity to sow that discontent, to distract from what the real issues are, to use criminality, to poison the conversations around what we ought to be talking about. That the last 24 hours, we've been talking about buildings and not policy. That the last 24 hours, we've been talking about structures and not structural racism. That for the last 24 hours, we have watched our neighbors have to shovel up glass and rebuild after already having to endure closures due to the pandemic. I want us to be clear. We are working with our partners in the Chicago Police Department who have demonstrated extraordinary restraint. I've watched the national coverage. I've seen other cities. And I remind us that this is a test, that restraint is what is required. And we've met that test here. And that we will Hold accountable those who are seeking to exploit this moment. That those people who took to that street yesterday and exercised their First Amendment right, mothers with children, elders who were there, who stood toe to toe, but did it without crossing the bounds. That's what this is about. And I don't want us to forget that for a moment. I don't want our Twitter fingers to only tweet about the images that there are some who only want us to see because we will continue in this perpetual cycle. We will continue this thing that we do, the sensationalism of what this is. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is awful. 
This is our home. And these people who've come in to try to disrupt that, the organized elements who care not about systemic issues, but shoes for profit. It's not what this is about. When we look back at this time years from now, I have four teenage daughters who are frightened out of their mind. And I tell them what this is about because they say, well, I thought it was about this man who died. If we continue to talk about the fringe element who's tried to hijack this and not about the men and women who've died in the systems that have allowed for their deaths to go unpunished, we have learned nothing from this. Thank you. Um, I've listened to this clip several times already, and um, I just am very moved by what she says and how she says it, and there's no way I could describe it in the way that she has. So I'd like to introduce my guest. Um, Dr. Dania Dunkley is an assistant professor and consultant at an academic medical center in New York. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Um, I actually no longer work at the uh, Academic Medical Center. I am am employed at uh, um, one of our state colleges here in New York. Okay. Um, As an assistant professor, as you mentioned, yes, thank you. I made an assumption it was still at the same place. Um, (laughs) So, uh, Dr. Dunkley, uh, share with us just a little bit about how you came to nursing and then how you have come to the role of bearing witness to racism and teaching another way. Sure. I, um, I've been a nurse now um, actually over a little over 20 years. I started off as an LPN straight out of high school and then uh, quickly went on to get my bachelor's degree and have been uh, working in the area of maternal child health since then. Um, you know, I started off at the bedside and then um, fulfilled a few administrative or leadership roles and uh, have now moved on to a um, full-time academic position. Um, but my resolve remains the same in, in that um, uh, I am an advocate for um, matters of, of injustice. Within our profession, as we know, that the uh, representation of African-American uh, nurses is disproportionate to um, the, the totality of those that represent the profession. And... Um, uh, I guess my advocacy started off there, as well as um, advocating for the uh, disparities between um, black and um, minority women in terms of maternal mortality and morbidity in my work as a maternal child nurse. So, uh, in a, uh, a nutshell, <laughs> that's what has brought me here today to discuss mm-hmm. this topic about the effects of racism uh, in, in the health of black and minority population. I want to kind of take your lead on this because I know you have been speaking about this around the country a lot and probably in your classes and anywhere else you can get people to listen, probably in boardrooms and uh, yeah. with administrators of hospitals who absolutely have got to hear this now. So what would you like to uh, address now? Well, that's that's a tough question. So many things happening all at once. I know. Um, <laughs> I believe when we, you know, when we started this year, um, and it was uh, uh, designated as the year of the nurse, none of us knew what was in store um, <laughs> with the arrival of the pandemic. And um, you know, prior to the the eruption of um, the recent events with the um, violent um, killing. Uh, of um, black and brown people um, in the recent weeks, our the pandemic was our main concern, and mm-hmm. um, even in that, we uh, have seen uh, disparate um, issues in terms of uh, blacks being affected um, at rates much higher than our counterparts. And a large piece of that is what um, we, we're here to discuss today. Uh, the, the, the root cause behind much of it is this issue with uh, systemic and structural racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I believe that's, that's where I'd like to, um, I guess, begin our discussion today and what I want people 
to um, really start to examine in their in their own environment across mm-hmm. the, the nation. Absolutely. Um, I, wa- I meant to insert earlier and I forgot, so I'm going to put it in here and then I'll add it again at the end of the show. Um, I know that there's so many people, and I certainly, having grown up in a very small town in central Minnesota, uh, have been one of them, and I continue to just try to learn as much as I can because I know there's so much I don't know what I don't know. So two books that have been very impactful for me. um, The first one was a book called The Warmth of Other Suns, and it's written by a, a journalist by the name of Isabel Wilkerson. Uh, who did an amazing job of uh, chronicling the the story of America's great migration from the south into the north, east, and west. Um, it was eye-opening for me. It's told to some extent uh, in the style of a novel, and so it's very accessible to those of us who have no idea what it is that Uh, as you say, black and brown people throughout our country, throughout the history of our country have experienced. And the second one is uh, by our former first lady, Michelle Obama, her book on becoming. And she also wrote that book almost in a style of a novel. And it showed uh, the same thing, starting in a very um, uh, depressed area, Uh, in a redlining area, you mentioned that, where um, uh, black and brown people were kept out of uh, areas that were a little bit more um, uh, safe, I would say. And as white people fled those areas, um, they became less safe. Um, So at any rate, uh, she just did an incredible job of showing the, the struggle and the rise and the learning and the uh, more than just education, but um, uh, personal life learning that really influenced me to really understand not only her and her husband, Oba- Barack Obama, but also all other uh, black and brown people who have struggled to find that education, to be able to get into uh, positions where they can have um uh, their their voice heard, so that's where it comes back to you. So um, take it from there. Right, and sure. And um, I, the, the, you mentioned redlining, um, and a part of our our nation's history. Um, you know the the disparities that we're seeing. Let me just backtrack a little bit um, mm-hmm. in terms of blacks dying a little bit more um, uh, disproportionately than um, their counterparts and even having shorter lifespans and outside of the pandemic mm-hmm. even um, being affected by different comorbidities at higher levels. I, I just want um, to, you, you mentioned what things do I want people to walk away with, is knowing that j- just being black is not the only factor here in terms exactly. of those increased comorbidities. Um, the historical context, and you mentioned redlining as just one of those things that contributed to um, what we currently see uh, is that uh, when you marginalize um, a, a, a group uh, or a culture and uh, force them to the outskirts, outskirts of a community uh, with limited resources, um, that then leads to an increase in poverty and risky behaviors and violence and crime because people uh, have nowhere else to turn. They have no resources. They've got uh, nothing to hang on to but survival. They're in survival mode. And so we see things um, that develop out of that context, such as poor nutrition and um, health habits that, that, that uh, are, are not conducive to wellness. And then you develop these things. Of course, you're going to develop hypertension and diabetes and mm-hmm. heart disease. Um, so it's not because uh, of your race, which is a social construct, but there are contributing factors to why we are at higher risk for these comorbidities. And then when you compound that with the situation that we're in with the pandemic, it's no wonder that it is affecting us more so than others. Um, mm-hmm. And like you mentioned, you know, redlining is just one of those things, um, you know, things that create food deserts and um, and and uh, increase risk for um, for poverty. So 
I, you I know, uh, Dania, probably a lot of people know what um, uh, food deserts are, but there may be people listening that do not, especially because this goes sure. around the world. Could you explain that? Sure. So I guess in my own words, uh, a food desert is what's kind of created by the segregation of, of different uh, cultural communities. And so uh, the, more, the, the less uh, uh, resource-rich communities um, have less sources for or, or less access to healthy options for, for food. So if you visit a, a, a neighborhood that is uh, what's classified as poor or are below the poverty level, you are going to see fresh produce as much as you would see it, uh, or even grocery stores for that matter, um, mm-hmm. in uh, higher income neighborhoods. You will see more fast food options and things that are, you know, corner stores and things that don't have healthier options because those things are less expensive. Yeah. So um, keep going from there. So th- th- the whole um, thing that people, I think, don't get is they assume that um, these neighborhoods already have the same kinds of things that um, perhaps somebody who is in uh, a much different um, economic st- situation, um, having financial uh comfort, perhaps, to be able to um, buy or go wherever they need to go to get the things that they need. This is an inequitable access to not just food, but let's talk about healthcare too. How is it different for, say, a mother with three young children um, who's working part-time and has to get a child with no car and has to get a child to a doctor? Absolutely. Those are, are, are other things we talk about, social determinants of health in terms of access to health care and what that access actually means. You know, like you said, how, um, how uh, easy is it or difficult is it for me to even get to a health care provider um, if I have all these competing priorities uh, or lack of resources? Um, but the, the, the other issue... Um, in, in terms of neighborhoods and, and access to care, um, is that even within some of the neighborhoods, when you do have access to care, if you can get there, the care that's provided is also inequitable. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when I talk about um, race, when, when you hear the term racism, many people automatically assume or um, their go-to is that um, face-to-face or individual-to-individual you know, discrimination or acts of discrimination. Um, But there are other forces at work here or at play um, that are deeply rooted in our nation's history, in the structures and the policies that uh, govern um, healthcare organizations and agencies, and even, like I mentioned, uh, uh, about um, where people live. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's not just about even the, the, the... individual healthcare organizations, but it, it is truly systemic and structural, and it's not just person-to-person where racism is inflicted. Right. And so all of so, these issues um, work together to influence health and wellness. So uh, especially what I have seen uh, and experienced in, in um, neighborhoods where people may be primarily uh, in lower-wage um, uh, jobs, they might not even be working full-time because full-time would give them benefits, and many um, employers do not want to uh, allow them to get to that point so that they themselves are, they feel like they're saving their business by um, not having to pay out medical benefits. So, right. <laughs> um, so somebody could have, medic- say, Medicaid, but there are only certain things that, that those um uh, healthcare uh, uh, options pay for, and exactly. so you may have a need that is not covered by one of those options. So then, what happens? Right, um, we we have people that are uninsured. We have folks like you mentioned that may have Medicaid or other government subsidized options that are underinsured. Um, when you talk about access, so those are some of the inequities that you so rightfully pointed out. Um, that affect our our, our um, minority population, but 
in addition to that, many um, minorities are, um, are, are those people who work in what we are now, uh, you know, everybody knows the term essential workers. Right, mm-hmm. so those are the, the now we're seeing who's uh, actually essential um, right. in terms of those who still have to to make it into work every day, and a part of what's happening uh, with uh, the outcomes that we're seeing in the minority in the black community is that um, many of us are these essential workers, and so we had no choice but to you know you know report to work and put mm-hmm. ourselves at risk, and then when you couple that with the fact that you know, like we said earlier, mm-hmm. uh, many of these people are underinsured or uninsured altogether. You know, and then if, and if even if you do have access and insurance, once you are inside the system, there are even further problems in terms of inequities there. Right, and that's where I want to go next. So we're mm-hmm. um, kind of up against a break, and I'd like to take that now. Uh, okay. So. I, like to just uh, cut here. This is uh, Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing. I am Leanne Meyer, and I'm here today. I'm talking with Dania, Dr. Dania Dunkley, an assistant professor and a consultant who is working uh, passionately on the front lines uh, to get out the message that racism kills in so many different ways, including within the healthcare system. We'll be back in just a couple minutes. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. Womeninhealthcare.org, a national nonprofit, is our newest partner at Once a Nurse. It is among the most rapidly growing professional development groups for women in healthcare today. Through healthcare education, professional development, mentorship, community, and a focus on self, the organization empowers women with the tools needed to advance their careers. They use initiatives to break down barriers within organizations and equip women with the tools needed to open a powerful force for gender parity. 80% of the healthcare workforce is female, with nurses a massive majority of that percentage. But less than 20% of leadership is female. Join womeninhealthcare.org as they help all women of all ages and all levels rise up. Use code HEALTHPROS to receive $50 off the annual membership fee and receive discounted pricing for events, free resources, webinars, and a substantial discount for our annual leadership summit on October 22, 2020. Womeninhealthcare.org to be where you want to be in the world of healthcare. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to leannevoiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. Thank you for coming back and joining us again. Um, this is Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing. And today we're talking about racism and especially how that impacts um, healthcare. And um, so I am talking with Dr. Dania Dunkley, and she is an assistant professor, and she has her own business, a consulting business that um, uh, she has been doing. Do you want to share what the, how they could get a hold of you while I'm talking about the consulting business? Oh, sure. <laughs> so I've, I've got um, a consulting business. It's called, uh, it's registered under Damien's Joy LLC. Um, however, the website, um, in order to access it, is uh, I am Dr. D, which is I A M D O C T O R D dot com. And um, it'll, you know, list all the services that I provide. One of those um, focus areas is on working with healthcare organizations um, in terms of those who provide maternity health services um, in order to advocate for 
the decrease in maternal health disparities. So uh, if you visit the website, you can learn all about me and and what I'm about. (laughs) Thank you. Great. And I also want to mention that if you're looking for Dania by her name, it's D-A-I-H-N-I-A, so Dania Dunkley, D-U-N-K-L-E-Y. Okay, so we were just talking about, um, we're starting to get into the healthcare um, aspect of, of uh, what the inequities are and why that is uh, so critical. One thing I'd like you to address is what difference does it make to everybody else in the country whether these individuals are getting good health care or not? What, what, what does it matter to everybody else? Well, I'll, I'll say this. It, it, this country uh, was founded on, on, on the principles of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. When someone, um, someone's wellness or health is affected, no, you know, nobody can profit from that. Um, that individual can't profit, and us as a society uh, doesn't get the full benefit of having healthy, whole individuals that are contributing uh, collectively to a nation um, mm-hmm. that can go to so many different heights um, if we all had equitable access uh, to health care. Um, and, and so our focus as nurses is on uh, always on prevention first. Um, and so we can't wait until people are ill uh, in order to, to try and, 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 and make them whole again. The, the, the goal is to prevent the illness. And so when you, when you think about people who are under, underinsured or uninsured, they're not even able to go to a well visit. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and so that definitely deeply impacts uh, our society as a whole. Mm-hmm. Well, and if they're giving, well, even further back, I'm thinking, um, you know, if somebody um, has a job, like I was explaining before, because mm-hmm. they actually know plenty of people, and there are millions in this country, that have jobs that are not livable. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you uh, the minimum wage in whatever it was, the 90s, was seven, $7.15 or something. And we have barely moved from that 30 years later. Uh, it's right. it's incredibly crazy. So if you do not have enough um, economic wealth to be able to manage and maintain yourself and your family, you're constantly in stress. That's one. Um, right. You're constantly uh, worried about are you going to have a roof over your head in a month or two months or six months. And then right. every little thing that happens, if you uh, your car breaks down and you can't use your car, so now you have to get to your job by a bicycle. So you're riding your bicycle, but it's maybe a little after dark, and a police officer stops you and says, why don't you have a light on your bicycle? I'm going to give you um, uh, a penalty. I'm going to uh, charge you for not having a light on your bicycle. Now I can't use my car. I can't use my bicycle, and now I can't go to work. So it's like everywhere along the line that people don't even think. In fact, um, Trevor, um, my brain just went dead uh, on the Daily Show. Uh, uh, Trevor Noah. Noah. Noah, thank you. Always because he has two first names. <laughs> it, it confuses me. But he was saying that he feels like people do not understand the concept of dominoes. We've all played dominoes. We've all had fun setting up those dominoes, and you push one, and they all go down one in a row. And that's exactly what happens with people who are constantly on the the margins of not quite having everything they need. Um, and, and then, like you said, if somebody is not able to go into a well check, and they go in when they're very seriously ill, um, the medication costs money. They may not be able to afford to do that. It may require that they take time off work. They're not able to do that. And so on and on and on, which keeps us in the same cycle. So that's kind of what I was thinking about, you know, with it. But let's talk about, and especially because both of us are from obstetrics, um, talk about what's different when, say, we've got two women. They both have the same exact insurance. They both have good jobs. And um, they are going into their first obstetric appointments because they're both pregnant. One is white and one is, let's say, African-American. Right. And so when we talk about inequity, um, black women are at a disadvantage immediately um, because 
um, not just because of their race. We know that there are issues with implicit bias and individual um, uh, racism. But when we talked earlier, we talked about those uh, comorbidities, and um, we we enter our pregnancies a lot of times with being at higher risk or, or actually having those comorbidities, like you know, heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes. And so our pregnancies uh, are sometimes um, already at risk um, mm-hmm. when, you, when, you, when you enter the system. Um, however, to address the issues with implicit bias, um, providers, um, and this has been researched and proven, um, have biases that um, perceive black women in a certain way. For example, <clears throat> our um, ability to tolerate pain. So, you know, if a white woman is in, in, in pain or, or in labor or asks for relief, pain relief, or versus a, a black person, the response is often very different um, where black women are thought to be able to handle their pain or they're not believed uh, when they report system, uh, symptoms. Excuse me. Um, so those are some of the, um, the day-to-day disparities that you see. And, um, you know, it, it, it transcends um, uh, educational level, um, socioeconomic status. Uh, it doesn't matter, you know, if I um, walk in as a, a doctorally prepared registered nurse uh, versus someone who is white with a high school education, um, you know, not, you know, to put, you know, different you know, mm-hmm. class levels, nobody's better sure. than the other, but just, you know, just the facts um, that we would be definitely uh, perceived differently or treated differently, and that has been researched and proven. And the only factor there that could uh, make uh, the distinction is our color or our race. So how so? What would be the the interaction? First of all, I can, you know, I'm in OB too, and I have heard so many people say, well, I've seen the studies, I understand that this happens, but I don't do that, and I don't know anybody who does that. And so, therefore, right. it's not true for me. Right. And everybody's individual experiences are, are different. I've spoken to moms who um, have had excellent experiences, but uh, those are, are, are what should be happening. Um, mm-hmm. But there's obviously a problem if our statistics are worse than underdeveloped nations. We can't mm-hmm. just keep saying, well, I don't, I don't, I don't. Uh, well, we need to raise awareness and have discussions on how to hold those providers who are having um, these disparate outcomes and, and what the root causes of these issues are in order to make the change. We can't just say, in, in my little bubble, it's not happening. But mm-hmm. nationally, we know it's a problem. You cannot continue to ignore it. Otherwise, like you said earlier, we'll continue with these cycles. Mm-hmm. Tell a little bit about the statistics, because every time I hear them, I'm just shocked. Mm-hmm. So, um, I actually have them pulled up. <laughs> I just have them ready to go. <laughs> Good. Um, so, in this country, black women are um, roughly three to four times more likely to die of um, uh, complications from pregnancy or childbirth. Um, different organizations define maternal mortality a little bit differently. But um, the definition that um, is at use here is in terms of when we say maternal mortality, we're talking about the estimated number of deaths for every 100,000 live births. And just to give you an example um, of one statistic, um, between 2011 and 2016, about um, 42 of those deaths per 100,000 live births were uh, of uh, black or non-Hispanic descent versus um, 13 for white women. Wow. Okay? Wow. So that's on a national level. And it, it, it gets even more disparate depending on what state you're living in at times. Um, but in terms of, um, uh, of uh, international comparison, um, you know, in terms of, um, uh, let's say, un- underdeveloped or... or a nation that's not as developed as, as mm-hmm. we are. Um, we're up there. Um, let's say 44 uh, women were affected in Brazil. Um, and in the United States, we have 40 yes. um, black women versus 12 white women. Yeah. Uh, so the number between 12 and 40, you can see 
um, is, is amazing. We're doing worse yeah. in just black women alone. Uh, the statistic is similar to an underdeveloped nation. So it's, it, it, is, uh, it is of concern. There are um, different government agencies and regulatory bodies that are, you know, have realized now that this needs to be a concerted effort in order to change this because other nations are doing well. Why can't we get this right? Right. And why can't we? Why do you have some ideas and thoughts I, I, and I believe, of why that doesn't happen? Yeah, yeah, I believe that it's it's a large part of what we're here to discuss today in terms of racism and how this affects the health of uh, Black and minority people. It is pervasive. It is cyclical. It is deeply rooted. It is um, for too long now has just been well. This is just how it is. And we mm-hmm. need to accept it. But I think that this is why you're seeing this eruption, this rage, um, right. if, I, if I may, um, kind of bring in what we're seeing now in terms of the protests and everything going on. Right. It's reached the boiling point because mm-hmm. we, we're, we're no longer able to just say that this is how it is. This is our nation's original sin and this is how it's always going to be. It cannot continue. Um, and we need advocacy. We need uh, in the nursing profession. Uh, we're outnumbered in terms of black nurses. We're outnumbered, mm-hmm. and our counterparts need to also take up arms with us and, uh, you know, lift a voice. It might not be about maternal mortality, but if we can address the issue of racism in general, we'll start to see some of these issues in, within maternal mortality um, turn around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, before we move off the subject, I just want to say one of the things we have to do is not only promote um, black and brown and Latino people to come into uh, healthcare. Um, maybe they don't have any models that would uh, indicate to them, yeah, that's something I could do. And so we not only have to recruit them into the education, but we also need to give them mentorship throughout the entire process. Um, because, Absolutely. again, just like going into an obstetric uh, unit as a white person versus a black or brown or Latino person, um, it's completely different. So do you yeah. want to speak to that? I think you're do- you've done some mentoring or you are aware yeah, of that. Another piece of, of who I am is an organization um, that I began um, right out of my um, dissertation research about the career journeys of uh, black and female nursing executives who are what I, you know, informally describe as unicorns um, mm. because you really don't, <laughs> don't, see, <laughs> don't them. see many of us at, at that level in terms of C-suite mm-hmm. executive positions like a chief nursing officer and the like. And so out of that study, um, much of uh, what my participants were able to reveal to me is that there is a definite lack in terms of mentorship there's a lack of representation, one. And then once we're in these positions, there's a lack of mentorship um, and, and, and development of those who want to pursue uh, leadership positions or even to be uh, introduced to the field in, in, in the first place. Um, so I've also dedicated uh, this organization to help, helping to support black and minority nurses um, who are entering the field as well as those who wish to continue on positions in, uh, in, in leadership, uh, which mm-hmm. is called the League of Extraordinary Black Nurses. So that is something that I'm, I'm certainly passionate about because there is a need for us to be able to bring others with us into these fields um, so that the diversity is equitable across the board and that we so, reflect the populations that we serve. So anybody interested <laughs> would find you through Extraordinary Black Nurses, say it yes, again. And is a, it dot org or dot com? Website. So it's uh, the L E B N T H E L E B N dot com. The T H, and then say again what the the letters sure. are. So the acronym is the League of Extraordinary Black Nurses. So the website www dot dot com. Dot com. Okay, great. Okay, so um, uh, let's see, I forgot where we were now. Uh, bring me back to, um, let's see, we are actually coming so we're talking up about mentorship on time. and recruiting yes, and retaining. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to mention too that uh, I can't speak for anywhere else, but I've been involved in um, a 
uh, scholarship program through the University of Minnesota uh, nursing program, and that is uh, uh, in memory or or um, honoring uh, Frances Mackay. She was the very first black nurse uh, admitted to the nursing program in, uh, I want to say, 1929. And mm-hmm. she initially was uh, the dean of nursing, sent her a letter that said, you can't come here. We don't have any black people here. This is a public educational institution. So it went through, um, she went through the, the um, legislature and they had to back down. They allowed her to come into the school, but they didn't want her to negatively impact the white nurses that would be there. So she was not allowed to come uh, and uh, be in the dormitory, which of course a lot of learning happens in the dormitory. Um, She graduated in three years and not only graduated with very high uh, grades, she also finished a four-year education uh, in education. She got a four-year degree in education during the same time she was completing a three-year diploma program in nursing. So she was the first black nurse to graduate, first black nurse to get a job in Minnesota, etc., all the way along the line. So anybody interested in coming into nursing and is in Minnesota or would like to come to Minnesota, that is something you could check out. And they are also looking at providing mentorship for people that are coming into the program. And it's for all people of color. Right. We, we absolutely need to change the way we look at how we welcome um, those entering nursing, schools of nursing, um, as well as those um, new graduates entering the, uh, the profession. Um, to there are, are specific nuances that affect, affect different cultures and, and racial groups um, that we need to study and um, change some of our policies and, and systems and structures to accommodate or to nurture those who are interested in pursuing um, medical careers. Um, so I think a lot of work needs to be done there, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to starting that work as I've just now entered um, an academic um, position. Um, right. so my advocacy will continue there as well. And what are you teaching specifically? Uh, the thing I love the most. <laughs> I teach obstetrics and pediatrics okay. at the moment. Uh, yeah, so it will branch out to other areas, but I'm teaching my first love at the moment. <laughs> Yay! Yay, wonderful. <laughs> how, how fortunate those students are, I can tell you oh, that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, um, I also had, uh, I believe, uh, I don't have the information in front of me, unfortunately, but um, I believe it was last August 5th. Um, I had Tammy Sinkfield on, and she talked a lot about, from a nurse's perspective, of going through nursing school and the differences um, that she experienced, again, where instructors expected more or less from her, um, gave more or less to her, um, made outrageous remarks to her that, you know, you just can't even believe a person would say to somebody right. else. Um, yeah, yeah, things like that. We have uh, just a couple minutes. Um, I was thinking about three minutes if you'd like to, you know, kind of finish up. What are, if there was, you know, something you really, really want to get, have people get, and especially in this time period, what is it that you really want people to know and understand? Um, I want people to understand, um, given our current climate, where the anger and the rage is coming from. Yeah. Um, you know, people are, and myself included, are, are frustrated, we're tired, we're angry, and we're grieving because uh, this, this, this system seems to be so stacked against us. But there are those who are, are still of the belief that we can make change, and I'm one of those individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe it's time now for, um, you know, this the year of the nurse and midwife and being a registered nurse, I'm, you know, partial to that where nurses are, are in a unique position now where, um, you know, the world has, has seen how essential we are to the fiber of, of, of every nation um, in more ways than just uh, healing touch. We can become agents of change, and, uh, but in doing so, we need to hold each other accountable. Like mm-hmm. I said, minorities are underrepresented in the profession, but we can't be the only ones advocating for this change. So we need right. 
uh, to come together. We need uh, healthcare organizations and the leaders of those organiza- organizations to have these difficult conversations and to, um, you know, look introspectively at what things can be can be changed. I know that change is going to come out of this pandemic anyway, but it needs to include, um, you know, these issues around race, uh, structural racism, right. absolutely at the forefront of those conversations in order to really make changes that um, affect uh, uh, the care of, of minority people. And so I guess that's, that's the main thing I would like to, to leave with people today. Well, if we can get that across, I think we've accomplished a lot. And so that is um, certainly a wonderful place to start. So as we come to the end of the show, and um, I just I can't even begin to say how much um, how important this is to me um, in so many different ways, but I'd like to share a couple things. One, um, I've heard so many amazingly articulate African-Americans and Latinos across the country in the media uh, speaking on behalf of the many protesters who want their message to get out to a complacent country. And seeing these murders by, by police and not uh, rising to stop it. I think that's, you know, maybe many of us, that's all we do know is all these videos that have been on in the last few years about uh, African Americans, black and brown and Latino uh, members or people uh, being shot by police. Um, but there's also all the other deaths that come in, the ones that you're talking about with maternal child health and so many more. So, um, what I wanted to share is uh, I am a Buddhist. And I believe that every single life is precious, and not just the ones that are are still in utero. Uh, at every level through that life, it is precious and valuable. So I wanted to read a quote from um, uh, Daisaku Ikeda, is a 92-year-old, he's a poet laureate in Japan, and also has worked his entire life for um, peace. So he says, all children are gems, full of precious potential. There is a hope in every child since life itself is full of hope. Should the hopes of children be stifled or broken, that would be our responsibility as adults. It pains my heart to see what goes on in today's society. I do not want to see the eyes of children darkened with fear and clouded with tears of sorrow. Society must be absolutely transformed. Children are mirrors that reflect adult society. When adults are ailing and their vision is clouded, children will also suffer. Let us wipe away the tears of sorrow from the face of each child. We must protect children and give them courage, strength, and vitality. And we need to give that to every other person on the planet. So this has been Once the Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing. I'm Leanne Meyer, and I'm so grateful that Dr. Dania Dunkley was able to join me today and talk about racism and health in America. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with your host, Leanne Meyer. Be sure to join us again next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a productive and insightful week.